You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and we have got a very interesting episode for you today. We're going to be talking with Kirk Hansen. He works for the Department of Natural Resources, and he is the Mississippi River Habitat Coordinator. So today, we're going to talk about all of the habitat work that he and his department do on the Mississippi River that helps benefit uh, fishing, you know, fish populations. It helps ben- uh, benefit waterfowl populations, vegetation, and uh, a whole bunch of interesting things that go along with the process of implementing habitat work on the Mississippi. And then, of course, we also talk about cool things like what's the coolest thing you've ever found when you, you know, when you're netting fish for a test or. Uh, the stuff that you guys are really going to want to listen to is where do certain fish live on the Mississippi River? And then it kind of all that all ties back into the habitat work that these guys do. And then we get to take advantage of that habitat work and make our fishing experience on the Mississippi River that much more enjoyable when we can talk about that now. Before we get into the episode, I got to say that if you like the Iowa Sportsman podcast, please be sure to share that information with your friends, you know, your family, spread the word about the podcast, subscribe to it, listen, like it. And then also please go to the Iowa Sportsman website, iowasportsman.com and be sure to read all the interesting blogs that they have there. And, and on top of that, uh, on the Iowa Sportsman website, you can also uh, subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman magazine, which again has a ton of great content, different from the podcast, different from, excuse me, different from the website. So that's the trifecta, the Iowa Sportsman podcast, magazine, and blog on iowasportsman.com. And last but not least, the Iowa Sportsman Atlas. And what that is, is is just a collection of information that you can purchase. And it's county by county throughout the state of Iowa. And it talks about where the public land is, certain state parks, what habitat or, you know, what the habitat's like in uh, specific parts of that county, what game and what fish uh, you can catch in that county and, and hunt in that county. So it's just a, um, a wealth of information. I have one in my truck at all times when I'm, you know, cruising the back roads and I see a piece of public land that, uh, you know, that I've either scouted online or, you know, just driving by it. And there's a, there's a brief, uh, bio of these, these rivers, these lakes, these pieces of property of what you may be able to find pheasant or turkey or, uh, deer or whatnot. So be sure to uh, take a look at the Atlas and, uh, you know, buy one and put it in your truck. So, all right, we've done the intro here. Let's get into today's, it's a pretty interesting podcast. I'm not going to lie. I love talking with uh, these guys because secretly I want their job in, in some crazy way. I would love to be the guy who's on a boat all day or who, you know, sits behind a desk and comes up with these ideas for habitat improvement. But we're going to be talking with Kirk Hansen from the Department of Iowa Natural Resources. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Kirk Hansen. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Dan. How you doing? I tell you what, I, you know, it's we've had a, a handful of sunshiny days outside, and it's just getting me fired up for getting back on uh, some water to do some fishing, turkeys, mushrooms. It's getting me ready for spring, and uh, it's it's so close I can taste it. Absolutely. All right. So 
Let's see here. Uh, we're going to talk about the Mississippi River. We're going to talk about habitat. We're going to talk about what you do. So um, why don't you go ahead and talk to us about what you do for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources? Sure. Um, I'm the Mississippi River Habitat Coordinator. I'm stationed over in, in Bellevue. Um, and, and what I do is I help coordinate habitat restoration projects that we do on the river. And then I also work with um, channel maintenance for the nine-foot navigation channel and commercial navigation on the river. When we do dredging, that's all coordinated and where we put the material. But the, the bulk of what I do is on the habitat restoration side. Okay. And most of that is, is and most of that's done through the Upper Mississippi River Restoration Program. It's a, a program through the Corps of Engineers, and it's, you know, it's it's how we do restoration work on the river, and it's a it's an awesome partnership of of the five Upper Miss states, the Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, USGS, NRCS, and, and EPA. Okay, so what states are involved in that? Uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, and Missouri. Missouri. Okay, gotcha. So then there's a break. And then is then it is it called the Southern Miss? Is there another Southern department that does the same thing you guys do? Um, they they do do habitat restoration in the lower river. They call it. I guess the the upper Miss is considered from the confluence of the Ohio River um, upstream, and then downstream from the confluence of the Ohio is called the the lower Mississippi River. Got yeah. Okay. And uh, we've, we had a guy from on recently from the uh, Corps of Engineers, and it sounds like you work hand in hand with those guys to do a variety of different things. Yep. Yep. We work very closely with uh, um, Dylan and the other biologists and planners and, and all the people with the Corps of Engineers okay. on habitat restoration. All right. So you talked a little bit about what it is that you do uh, at a high level, but let's talk a little bit about the details of what you do, um, because I think this is this is like for me when I was a kid, I I had this thought about hey I want to be a DNR officer or I want to be a biologist and I want to be or you know I want to be wearing scuba tanks and I want to look for catfish and you know all these crazy uh, crazy ideas running through my head as a kid, but. I think what I really wanted was just to be outside all of the time. So is most of your time spent outside doing these projects or is it in the office pushing paper? <laughs> you know, I, that was my, my, uh, my thought when I started out my career too. And it seems like the, the farther I've progressed in my career, the uh, more office time and meeting time <laughs> that I've, you know, moved into. Um, I, I, I still get out in the field quite a bit, but, um, yeah, I mean, when we, we're planning these projects, it's a you know long-term planning process that may take you know, you know, three years. Um, just you know, doing the the reports necessary, the feasibility reports and environmental assessments, just to have the project happen. Um, so it, it it is a lot of you know a lot more desk and meeting time than you know people fantasize about our jobs being. But uh, you know, it's it's still, you know, rewarding work. Yeah. You know, we see the projects that happen at the end. So let's talk a little bit about um, the upper Mississippi and how that, how does that get funded with, you know, when there's a habitat uh, restoration idea that comes to the table and it gets passed, who funds that? Is that a, a, a little bit of all those states chipping in to one, you know, one project, or if it's on the Iowa side of the river, then Iowa pays for it. Or if it's on the Wisconsin side of the river, Wisconsin pays for it. Well, it's a, so the, the EMRR program is a, is a line item that's, that's funded um, through Congress every year. Okay. So most of, most of the funding is federal. Um, if there's, you know, a project occurs on state lands and there's a, there's a cost share that's, associated with that that we have you know kick money into it but if the project occurs on federal land it's a 100 percent federal project okay all right and a lot of the a lot of the mississippi rivers um federal land because the um core purchaser um took most of that land when the lock and dam systems were were put in place all right okay so um now the details of when you do get out into the 
you know, on a boat or you're on the bank and you're doing whatever it is that you do, what are, uh, what are the details there? Walk us through like an average day outside. <laughs> oh, so, okay. So I guess just like the whole process from the, you know, when a project starts and goes into construction, you know, we, we have river teams up and down the, the river within each core district. Um, you know, that kind of, we have meetings and when we need to have a, you know, set of projects go forward, we collaboratively work with all the partners to, you know, select the best locations, you know, based on needs. And we, you know, there's a lot of science that goes into it and, and a lot of, uh, um, mapping and, and we know what kind of the conditions are out there where things are changing, um, and where we can, you know, get the best bang for our buck when we, when we make a project. Um, and then we go into kind of the planning, the planning phase, and that takes several years, you know, two to three years, um, where we make a plan and drought plans and specs, and then it goes into construction. And you know, those contracts go out, and they get a contractor to come in and and do that work. And then, you know, when during construction, we're out on a project maybe once a week or once every two weeks, just kind of, you know, we get an update on how things are going. There may be, you know, they run into changing conditions out there. Um, maybe the, you know, the sediment isn't exactly what we thought it might've been, um, or we may need to move the alignment a little bit to, to make things kind of field fit and, and look more natural. Um, so we're out there, um, looking and reviewing that a little overseeing and, the project. Yeah. I mean, the, the core has contracting officers, you know, that are in charge of doing that, but when they make need to make changes, they consult with us to make sure that, you know, the product that we get in the end is going to, you know, meet the environmental needs that, you know, are the goals of the project. Right. Okay. So let's talk about some of the uh, past, maybe uh, the habitat restoration projects that, that you have done, you know, from the, the time that it's, it was an idea all the way to completion. Um, so is there any right off the top of your head that you can think about, that uh, you could share with us yeah and uh in pool 12 we're just finishing up um, a project called the pool 12 overwintering hrep and that was a project where we dredged out um, four backwater lakes um, to increase you know the depths of the lakes and overwintering habitat i probably should explain that overwintering habitat for um, our centrarchid fishes which are like their bass bluegills crappies are um, critical habitat, you know, they're a lake fish for the most part, you know, you associate them with lakes. Well, you know, in the Mississippi river, we have, you know, this mosaic of habitats with, you know, running water and sloughs in the main channel and side channels. And then also these backwater lakes. Well, those fish in the winter time need areas that don't have any flow and then are deep enough that they don't freeze to the bottom and then also maintain enough oxygen throughout the winter. They, they can't handle, um, really any flow in the winter time. So those areas are critical for maintaining their populations. Um, and over time, our backwaters have been, have been filling in. So it's one of the you know big things that we do. Um, one of the main focuses we have of habitat restoration is dredging out backwaters and, and uh, recreating that backwater habitat for those fish. Okay. So that's what um, we did in pool 12. What, where um, is pool 12? Four different, it runs from Dubuque to Bellevue. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So when, when you complete a, uh, you know, a, I guess, a, a habitat restoration project like that, is that instantly work in, in a river? I mean, when you get in there, you dredge it, do fish instantly take to that new cover or hole that you've dug? You know, they, they do. Um, one thing that we see, though, with um, overwintering projects and, and some of the we've done, you know, telemetry work in the past through our, our research team in Bellevue um, you know, over the last several decades, um, it does take a little while. The, the fish home in on a certain backwater. So if they, you know, survive in a, in a lake, they'll return to that lake every year. Um, so when we build that, we don't necessarily instantly see a, a ton of fish in there. It usually takes, you know, five years or a little bit longer for that population, the new population to build in the lake. So, you know, the first year there'll be a lot, you know, a lot of age one fish because they made it through the winter. And then the following year, you know, we see age two, age three, you know, 
And so it takes a little bit for the, the population to grow into there. But, um, you know, we've done a lot of backwater restoration projects through the program and they've, you know, all been, you know, very successful, you know, especially from a fishing standpoint. Gotcha. So that's in the, in the, the backwaters, so to speak, the, the lakes that uh, are in and out of there. What about the main channel? Um, because when I talked to the guy from the Corps of Engineers, he made it sound like first and foremost, navigation takes priority. Yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> that's that's true for the most part. Um, the, the upper Miss is, is, is unique uh, rivers in the U.S. It's been designated by Congress as a nationally significant ecosystem and a nationally significant navigation system. And, and navigation, <laughs> you know, that... It, it is very important, you know, economically for the for the region and, you know, globally, you know, getting the, the grain out of the Midwest and, and, you know, transporting goods up and down the river. But it, we're looking for that balance of, you know, the ecosystem and navigation coexisting. That's what, um, you know, established the UMRR program, you know, to provide stewardship and, and look over the environmental needs of the river. Okay. So it's a handshake, basically. It's a, it's a communication. It's two, it's two guys talking back and forth to each other to make it all, all work so that one, you know, the, the navigation necessarily isn't ruining the, uh, the habitat and the habitat necessarily isn't ruining the quote unquote economy. Yes, absolutely. And that's, yeah, that's what we do. I mean, we don't do anything habitat restoration wise that's going to affect the navigation system. Right. And we, you know, try to minimize the, the, uh, ecosystem effects of the navigation system. So, right. Yeah. It, they, they coexist hand in hand. Yes. So, um, you're the Mississippi river habitat coordinator. Is, is the habitat restoration that you do mainly fish, or do you also do like waterfowl and other species? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. You know, everything we do out there, it's not just for for one thing. You know, I just we just talked about that pool twelve stuff. Well, that material that we that we dredged out of the the backwater lakes, then we used to to establish some some um, forest diversity areas. Um, if you've ever been out on the river, or, or if you haven't most of the the forest out there is is silver maples um with a, a few other things mixed in and elevation of our islands really controls what what kind of forest we have out there um silver maples are the most tolerant to to flooding and can handle a lot of water you know on them throughout the year um as we raise we can raise the elevation just a little bit you know foot two foot three foot we can start um growing oak trees or other mast trees that produce nuts that are, you know, valuable for, for wildlife. So in that part of that pool 12 project is we use that material to, to build some of the island elevations up and, and planted, you know, more diverse trees on there. Oh, okay. So you, um, you actually dredged out the, the ground or the, you know, the, the riverbed and you brought that material up and then you used it to either build or increase the elevation of an already existing island yes oh yep. cool cool so it's just not like it's washed down the river somewhere else no 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 we we try to you know yeah we can't just dig it out of the lake and throw it in the river no we got there's uh, regulations we gotta do okay well that's follow, so. that's cool um, that's pretty cool how that all that works now when you build those um those islands what keeps them from washing away in floods is like obviously the tree roots and hold the, hold the soil at some point. But is there any other things that you do to ensure that, you know, because obviously water moving water erodes soil and fills in set you know, fills in the, the trench that, or, the, you know, the, the trench that the, you know, barges move in and out and there's boats up there that all cause causes erosion. Are there things that you do to those islands to help prevent erosion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and if it's, and it depends on where the island is or the, the feature is, you know, if it's like with the Pool 12 project, we were way off the main channel, you know, in these backwater side channel complexes where, you know, 
erosion, that kind of erosion isn't a big deal. Um, if we're, you know, more on the channel border or maybe out in the, the lower parts of the pools that, you know, don't have much land mass and it's kind of wide open, we will armor um, islands in certain ways to, to ensure they're, you know, they last, um, be it, you know, just a solid line of rock or we have um, rock veins that we can put along there that, that protect and keep the islands there. Okay, cool. Now, this just popped into my head uh netting okay i've seen i've seen these big commercial fishermen guys out there bring their nets in and they have a whole bunch of fish that they you know they they collect do you guys ever go out and take big samples you know check the fish out look for diseases you know do counts or anything like that yeah absolutely um you know we do um both netting and also electrofishing where we you know have the boat out there with the generator and the and put the electricity in the water and stun the fish and count them and you know we have crews that do that just as you know part of monitoring the river and and you know assessing things and we also do as part of you know the this restoration we also do focused monitoring on on some of the projects just to monitor their success and make sure that they're um, functioning as as designed okay so you dredged out that lake you waited till winter cut a hole in the ice then you did a test or you took a sample to see what fish had moved in and and took advantage of that new dredging yeah we typically don't do it under under the ice we'll wait till till late fall okay typically when the the water temperatures start dropping below 50 degrees you know as closer as you get to to the lake freezing over more and more fish are moving into those lakes so we'll wait till late fall when the water's cold and go in there and sample with our either um nets or or electro fishing okay and what do you what do you see when you do that what are what's the typical results of those uh those tests and those collections well, we, you know, when we do a habitat project, you know, in the monitoring, we'll see a, you know, a large increase in the number numbers of fish in that lake, you know, not only the numbers, but also the, the size structure. If we, you know, we just take bluegills, for example, you know, if you take a, a backwater that's, you know, very degraded and shallow and, you know, for some reason may have oxygen problems or, or temperature issues, um, we typically don't see a whole lot of bluegills and they're all real small, gotcha. you know, and we go to a, a really nice backwater that has, is nice and deep and maintains oxygen throughout the whole winter. And we'll see, you know, a wide range of ages up to big, big bluegills. And then also, you know, big numbers. Okay. All right. So let me ask you this, cause this is the, this is the kid in me asking this question. You're out there, you're, you throw a net down or you do your electro, a collection you pull up a net what is some of the craziest things that you've seen when you've pulled up that net or you've took that co- that collection oh. <laughs> um you know i don't know sometimes it's just completely full of fish and you don't know how you can fit another fish in there um sometimes one time we were out there and we pulled the net up and there was three dollar bills inside the net not very many fish and we assumed that somebody had come by and grabbed fish out of it <laughs> over the night or something <laughs> and put money in there was three dollar yeah. bills yeah <laughs> yep what about you, you never know you never know what you're gonna pull up i mean you know sometimes are, when we've we've done some netting in the main channel for sturgeon and we've pulled up you know like outboard motors and and uh you know all sorts of crazy things old you know pull tab cans and and whatever anybody puts out there right we're, we're bound to catch at some point right now what about um okay so here's what I, here's what i'm thinking you know you pull up a net and there's a fish there and it's like have you ever pulled up a state record or um a fish that's so big you're like oh my god if somebody caught this it would be the state the state record you know, I don't know if I've ever pulled up a state record fish, but we see we see a lot of a lot of nice fish yeah. in our sampling. Yeah. Um, that yeah, the, <laughs> the general public saw. You know, it they'd be pretty excited. We've got a lot of nice fish out here on the river. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like walleyes, northerns, catfish, yep, bass, bluegill, a little bit of everything. All yep, all of the above. 
Okay. What about a strange species? Well, we do some work with like sturgeon and paddlefish. Okay. Um, you know, the kind of some of our more primitive fish. And then, you know, there's just a lot of fish species out there that, that the general public or, you know, anglers never sees, you know, there's such a huge diversity of fish out there, you know, right. We've got, you know, pushing a hundred different species of fish out there and, and, you know, a lot of them are small, you know, non-game fish that people never see, you know, just fishing, but, um, okay. Yeah. It's just neat. Every time we go out there, you never know what you're going to see. Right. Do you guys ever do any habitat restoration work for, bait fish I, I say bait fish specifically and i think that's like uh, shad and minnows and, and any anything that maybe a predatory fish would would eat do you do any habitat work specifically for them well yeah i mean we don't like specifically call that out i guess we don't say we're doing this restoration project for for um river shiners or or weed shiners or anything um you know, but anytime that we're out there, you know, diversifying the habitat and, you know, we, we do a lot of projects where, where we, you know, the goal is to, to increase the, the coverage and, and resiliency of our aquatic vegetation out there. And that aquatic vegetation is very important, you know, as, as, uh, you know, forage, you know, all the, the invertebrates and that grow in it. And also, right. you know, um, places for those little fish to hide and hang out. Um, you know, as well as important food for, for waterfowl. Um, you know, it's not, we don't do everything out there for fish. You know, we do, it's, you know, the whole ecosystem. We take an ecosystem approach at it. Good. Um, okay. Um, has, speaking of waterfowl, have you guys done, um, any projects to where, you know, you, you say, okay, well, this obviously helps the ecosystem, but you have seen a, a, a direct result in maybe a waterfowl species coming back to that area because the, uh, the, the project was such a success. Yeah. I mean, especially with the, the, the lower pool areas, you know, you talked to Dylan from the core there, um, a while back, you know, the lower pool 13, what we're really looking to do down there is to, uh, increase the the coverage and and the resiliency of our wild celery beds in lower pool 13 yep. and that's a, a vital and very important food source for the canvas back duck um you know and and i don't know if a lot of people realize it but you know a, a huge percentage or majority of the, the canvas backs in the u.s migrate through the upper mississippi river every year and if you've never been up to to lower pool nine in early november um, I would suggest going up there if you like to see canvasbacks. There's, you know, tens of thousands and at times, you know, over a hundred thousand canvasbacks on that lower pool at a time wow. you know, if you if you hit it right. And, and they're they're there they're there to eat um wild celery winter buds. They're they're a plant that grows in the lower pool and they um put out these little kind of starchy tubers that they call winter buds that they sprout out of in the next year. And that's what the canvasbacks are, are in there focusing on. Okay. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is invasive species. Like uh, I know there's some carp that are uh, are pretty invasive or mussels, or I don't know if there's any type of vegetation that has a, that is, you know, it hits the river, it clogs it up, or it's not supposed to be there. How do you guys approach invasive species? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we try to, to manage them as best we can to, to make sure that they have the, the least environmental impact. You know, from from the forestry standpoint, you know, one of the, the biggest invasive species that we deal with is reed canary grass. Um, it, you know, likes to grow in those wet areas, um, kind of similar to where the uh, silver maples are. But when, when canopy gaps open up when a tree falls down, this reed canary grass grows in there. And it grows so thick that it, it prevents anything else from from growing, and it's hard to get the forest to regenerate once once it's established. So how so, do you get rid of it, Brian? Um, well, no, you know, it's it's a good question. A lot of our forestry partners have been doing a lot of work on that. You know, there's there's you know chemical treatments and mechanical things that they that they do to to kind of break that up and then try to get some trees established. Once you can get you know 
some trees established on it. You know, they, the, the trees tend to shade it out, but it's just getting it broke down enough and, and weak enough that you can get something established through it. Okay. Um, you know, in other areas, we just come in and we, we dredge out a backwater and bury it in, in several feet of sediment and plant trees on that, and <laughs> that takes care of it too. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. What about uh, what about underwater vegetation? Are there any other um, – so I don't know if this is accurate or not. I know that my father-in-law has f- fishes uh, the uh, Harper's Ferry, the uh, Lansing pool up there, mm-hmm. uh, two, yep. two different pools there. And he, uh, he bitches about the weeds all the time coming and, you know, I can't cast it, you know, I can't cast or without getting weeds. Um, is that an invasive species that he's snagging all the time? Cause I, I feel like, um, I was talking to someone and the, uh, like the, the Lansing pool has a lot of, uh, vegetation, a lot of grass that the pool below it doesn't have. Is that an invasive species or is that natural? That is the, uh, wild celery. Okay. Which is, which is, you know, very important for the canvas back and, and really, you know, it's, it's important for several of our fish species too. Um, you know, when we saw that the wild celery numbers have, you know, increased since the since the 90s, um, we really saw a resurgence in yellow perch, okay. which are really big right now up there, and um, also northern pike. Um, you know, so that, yes, it, it is a pain during times of year when, it's, when the, the plant going into the fall, it's starting to senesce and those, you know, main body of the plant kind of dies off and starts drifting downriver, um, but ecologically that stuff is is very important for a lot of a lot of things okay i'll tell him you said i'll tell him you said to stop bitching about it (laughs) 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 all right so um what about any other projects that you got coming down the pipe that are that are interesting well we've got we've got a lot of habitat work going on right now um, he said, you know, your dad's up there and in, in, around Lansing and Pool 9. We've got um, a Conway Lake project that's going to be starting up in construction this year just above the town of Lansing. Um, we're going to be dredging, doing some dredging and forest restoration work in Shore Slough and Philippi Lake. Okay. Um, we have the Harper Slough project, which is in far the far southern end of Pool 9 that just um, finished up last year and we're we have a little bit of um, additional work to do um, down there, but that's a, um, we built some islands down there to, you know, when we talk about our lower pools, I guess, you know, the lock and dam system that was put in, you know, in the thirties and that operates today, you know, they're kind of, it pools the water up to make sure that navigation can occur, you know, all the way up and down the river. And it's really, you know, a, a low water control thing, you know, to make sure that the water can't get too low, that the, the um, barges can't can't navigate up to the river system. So you'll see the, the upper part of the pool will have all the braided side channels and islands and, you know, look real natural. And as we move down the pool, as those water elevations had increased, we would get more and more open water. You know, and, and Pool 9 is a really good example of, you know, we have a lot of wide open space down there. Um, a lot of it's really shallow and has stumps. You can't just drive around anywhere you want to go down there. But one issue that we have with when we have those areas is um, wind wind fetch, which is, you know, basically the distance wind has to, to push the water. And we'll get, you know, if we have long distances like that. We get big waves and it resuspends the sediment which makes the water dirty, which decreases our aquatic vegetation. So part of that project was to reconstruct some islands to, to knock that wind fetch down so that the waves don't get that big, which in turn would promote aquatic vegetation. And we also did some dredging behind a couple of the islands for, for uh, fish habitat. Okay. All right. Uh, and when you do, when that's crazy that some guy figured this out, right? It's like, well, the wind is stirring up the water. Well, here's what we need to do. We need to block the wind. We're going to build an island. We're going to plant some trees, and that should help with that. Well, yeah, and I mean, so, you know, part, talk about that EMRR program, you know, 
part of it is the habitat restoration work. Another part is um, scientific monitoring and, and science work that's done um, through USGS and, and the states that we, we have a, there's a model that we have that we can take that lower pool area, take a map of it and, and draw out islands on there and it'll tell us what, what we can expect to see for wind fetch. And we use that to help design the, design the projects and the alignment of islands. So almost like a simulation. Yep. Absolutely. Oh, man, that's crazy. And that, and so you said that actually will help you say, okay, well, we need a, uh, an island that looks like a boomerang or we need an island that's just a, you know, a, a square or a circle or whatever. Or just where to place the island. Okay. You know, this, you know, this is the arrangement that, that will best tackle that wind fetch issue. Okay. All right. So it sounds like you guys are constantly busy, you know, whether it's with, uh, you know, doing your work behind the desk or out in the river, actually doing the work that you've, you know, agreed upon with the core and, uh, very interesting stuff. Now I gotta, I, this is a, a sporting pod podcast. So we, we got to talk about fish a little bit and fishing and absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So you, you've been, a, how many years have you been doing this job? Um, well, my current position a little over a year and a half but i've been you know involved in the process since i started in bellevue and 15 years ago okay so 15 years right and i are i take it that what you do are you a fisherman as well absolutely absolutely okay so you got to you got to help us out and i don't want i don't want you to give away all your secrets but fishing you know <laughs> But there's no fish over here on the river. That's right. Away. That's right. That's right. You guys should just go go fish the Missouri, right? Oh, we've got tons of fish over here and plenty of them. Right. So I want to talk about you know a guy gets on the on the river. Now my my father in law has been uh, fishing up in Harpers and Lansing for 45 years. He's been going up there and fishing ever since he was like in his 20s, and he it's. It's almost unfair because when I go out, I'll catch like 15 fish, 20 fish. And he's like, man, I'm, I'm, I really apologize for wasting your time today. It's been a slow day. I'm just like, what? I caught, I caught 15 fish today. I'm happy with that. Right. Where, you know, knowing what, you know, is there any places that a guy should really focus on as far as structure or islands or any habitat that may, you know, help them have better success for, uh, I don't know, any particular species? Yeah, you know, that's a very good question. I would say it depends on the species, it depends on the time of year, and it depends on the water level. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, one of the biggest mistakes that I see people, you know, make here on the river is they, they like to fish a spot. You know, yeah. they've got this one single wing dam they go to or – one snag that they like to fish and they always go to that spot and sometimes they do really well and other times they don't and I, a lot of times I, they don't make the connection on why they didn't do very well they didn't know well the water was four foot higher this time than it was the time that you know we did really good there or well it was it was you know october when we did really good there but it's june and we're not doing that good there right. um you know we've done uh, a lot of telemetry work on, on fish from, you know, walleye to bass to, to crappies and bluegills to um, right now our, our research crew just started a project on yellow perch. But, you know, let's take walleye, for example. You know, they're during most of the year, they're, they're pretty much a, a homebody. They have, you know, one wing dam or a wing dam series that they like to hang out on. Um, but... They, they do make movements, and one is in the spring. When the ice goes out, um, they'll, they'll move upriver or downriver to, to a spawning location. Um, the, you know, the males will typically move to the spawning location. The females oftentimes will, will move to a backwater or side channel complex where the water is just a little bit warmer. And, and our thought is that, that that helps the egg development, and then they'll, they'll go – and spawn when they're ready and then they'll move right back down to you know the wing dam that they've been hanging out on all year um 
So when when they move to a spawning location like that, uh, is that a specific place or is that like the mouth into a slough, you know, where the river meets a slough or current? Is, Is it current or is it not current? It's they're they're looking for a substrate and, and, and kind of the current which kind of go on hand in hand and there's a, a few you know several locations that we know um, where where spawning occurs. Okay, so up and down the river. So what does that look like? If I if I'm if I have a depth you know a, a depth finder or you know one of those new technologies that allows you to see the bottom of the river, you know what does that act, that area actually look like? from from a boat well they're they're looking you know they're looking for areas with you know kind of gravel cobble substrate um down here i think in you know in other areas as you move up river sometimes they'll they'll spawn in, in flooded vegetation but at least down our way um and the work that we've done like in pool 13 it was pretty much all on, on a couple a couple locations but like, like it's, rock it's basically the substrate yeah, you're looking for rock gravel beds. Maybe, you know, if it's a dense enough, a muscle bed. But um, for the most part, it's kind of um, gravel cobble substrates. Okay. All right. So that's uh, walleye during uh, the spring and spawn, and then they tend to go back to like a wing dam or a, a heavier current area for the rest yep. of the year. Yep. And, yep. and then with the wing dams, you know, generally it's a, you know, if you have the maps up or looking at it, it's usually, you know, they'll have a wing dam field or a series in a row, you know, maybe four, four or five wing dams in a row. And typically they'll hang out on, on one series there the whole, the whole year. And, and where they're at will depend on the river levels. Cause that's the, the, the other big variable, you know, as the, the water's higher, you know, they're, they're looking for a kind of an optimal flow level. So as the river's higher and there's more flow coming down, they'll move down lower in that chain because the farther downstream in that in that wing dam chain you get, the lower flows you'll typically see on them. And conversely, then when the if the water levels are lower, they'll move you know up that chain a little bit to to get into that you know flow sweet spot that they seem to like. Okay, real quick for everybody who's listening who doesn't know what a wing dam is, what is a wing dam? Okay, it, it's a structure that, that was constructed. Um, the purpose of them is to, to push water into the main channel and to maintain um, adequate depths in the main channel for commercial navigation. Um, they're generally constructed on a rock, but they, they make great great fish habitat. They're great spots. The, the walleyes and other predators like to hang out and, and eat fish off of. Okay, and they're, they're scattered up along the river, you know, they run up into the bank and they help water flow into the, into the main channel. Okay. All right. So, yep. And there's also, and there's also closing dams in some of the side channels. And, and if you go on our website or the Corps website and look at the navigation charts, they're, they're on there, um, on the maps and stuff. Okay. So do the walleye like to just hang out right on top of them? Are they up on, let's say I have a wing dam that I find in my boat and I'm fishing. Is it ahead of the current? Like, is it upstream or is it on the back end side of the wing dam? Most, mostly upstream. It seems the, the active fish seem to be kind of on the, the front edge or on, on the top of the wing dam. So there's, you know, a couple different methods that, that we see used or all well, three, um, you know, guys will, guys will throw crankbaits on there, you know, bring it on off the top of the wing dam and down into the trough in front of it. Um, guys will basically do the same thing with throwing jigs or um, a lot of guys will pull three-way rigs with a kind of a sinker, you know, down on the bottom and then, you know, a trailing line with a spinner or a hook or, or something off of that. And they'll work that in the trough and the kind of in front of the wing dam. Gotcha. And then as the water gets colder throughout the, you know, like, my father, my father-in-law, he tells me his favorite time to be out on the river is in October. He's just he feels that more fish are biting that time of year. It, do do the walleye do something different uh, in in fall, or are they still in that same pattern of hanging out in the, in those wing dams all the way up until winter? Well, and I, w- I would not say that they're only in the wing dams. That's just a common place that okay. people fish for them. Um, but it, it, all the, almost all the fish, when you're going into fall, 
they're they're putting on the the feed bag trying to build up mass for the winter and yeah i would i would agree with him that is one of the best times of year to be out there fishing on the river okay what about i'm gonna pick a random species i used to love to fish for catfish when i was a kid is there a particular place that a guy is going to find more catfish You know, we we're pretty blessed out here. We have a lot of catfish out here on the on the river, and I'd say you know they there's certain yeah. I mean, there's just a, <laughs> you know I don't know the specific spot. You know, there there seems to be there's guys that catch them on the wing dams, you know, in between the wing dam fields, um, in the side channels around and around logs and and snags. Um, they're just kind of everyone when, when the when the water comes up sometimes in the spring or summer if we get a rise and some of the terrestrial areas become flooded those can be really good areas because the catfish will will move into those areas and, and feed on the worms and other invertebrates that are coming out of the out of the ground um you know in the springtime as, as the ice is coming off some of these lakes um we have gizzard shad out here on the river but they're not the hardiest fish um for our climate in the winter and a lot of them will die over winter so there's this you know abundant supply of of dead fish in some of these backwaters and the catfish will move in in there and feed pretty heavily and can you know if you get in the right spot you can catch a lot of catfish in, in short order yeah i've seen some guys pull some pretty big catfish out of the river it's uh I, I think the biggest catfish I've ever caught is 14, I think it was 14 pounds. And uh, I thought I was the best fisherman in the world the day I caught that. But then I've <laughs> seen some guys pull out some 50 pounders as well. So that's a, that's an interesting fish. Well, yeah, and I guess I should point out too, I guess I was mostly talking about channel catfish. Yeah. Um, then there's the flathead catfish, which is the one that, you know, gets, gets really big. And that, that one is, is a, is a predator and you know you need to you know mostly use live bait for it um sometimes you know it seems like sometime in may a lot of guys will do go up below the dams and do pretty good um jigging big jigs with a with a bluegill or some sort of big bait on it and catch them um guys will run bank lines for them or go out at night you know around snags you know go out and catch some bluegills and then and then use those for bait um yeah, we've got some big flatheads out there. I think the biggest I had is probably around 45 pounds. That's a big fish. Here. That's a big fish. All right, so. Yeah, you know you got something when you got that on the other end of the line. Right, right. Now, what about, and I've caught, I've caught largemouth. My, fa- my favorite fish to catch, period, hands down, is smallmouth bass. That's my favorite by far. But largemouth I've caught I've caught largemouth on the river off wing dams. I've caught them at the, you know, at the dam. I've caught them in the backwaters. I've caught them everywhere, right, right off the banks. What um, is a is a largemouth bass kind of adaptable to any any situation, or do they favor a habitat or a particular structure more than another? Well, I mean, they definitely you know favor structure of some kind, but yeah, like you said, we see. We see largemouth bass kind of all over the place, um, you know, anywhere, you know, you get it by the dams and we've got, you know, a lot of rock habitat. Um, you know, and also there's, you know, a lot of bait fish that can come through the dam at different times that might be, you know, stunned or mobilized that, that they'll kind of focus in and feed on. Um, you know, we, I, yeah, we see largemouth bass all over the place, but, you know, anytime you can get some sort of rock structure or, or wood structure, they seem to definitely key in on that. Also, you know, just aquatic vegetation itself is, you know, structured during the summer. There's a lot of guys that, that throw, you know, scum frogs and other topwater stuff into the lily pads and lotus fields to, you know, get, catch them in using those topwater baits and that heavy vegetation. Right. Right. What about uh, smallmouth bass? Uh, my understanding is they like a little bit more current. Yeah, they're definitely they're definitely a, a species that focuses in on the flow, and it definitely seems like our smallmouth bass numbers have been on the rise on the river here lately. Um, 
which is which is which is good but yeah they definitely um are focused more in on the flow and you definitely see them on shorelines that have have rock and and wood woody debris okay and then also they catch them out on the wing dams too yeah yeah i've, I've definitely caught some out there as well all right so what what's your favorite fish to go after out on the river i'm kind of particular to the crappie okay all right, so talk to me about where they hang out and then give us your best spot. <laughs> I'm well, just, so, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. Um, you know, they're so they're again one of our backwater species that that need those deep backwaters to to make it through the winter. Um, so in the, you know, of course in the winter time that's where they're at, you know, along with the bluegills and the, the bass and the northern pike and um, you know, that's where you see everybody ice fishing out here on the river in the wintertime or spots like that. Um, when the, that's a species we've done some telemetry work on too. So it's, we have some pretty good data on that. Um, and usually when the ice goes out, they'll start to disperse from that main lake. Um, and they'll move into kind of other lakes and shallower areas, you know, kind of getting ready to, to spawn, you know, going through the spawn, you know, sometime in, in, in May. All right. And then, you know, depending on the, on the water levels, they'll, they'll be out in the um, kind of sloughs and side channels. Um, if the, if the river's kind of normal, if the, if the water's high, they'll move, you know, into backwaters and try to get, you know, out of, out of too much flow. They don't like a lot of flow, but they, they do like a little bit of flow. Um, and then, you know, one thing talking about these backwaters, um, where they winter, you know, they kind of, they home in on one backwater and keep returning every winter, but you get this population of fish where they spread out every, every spring and, and summer. And then as we get closer and closer to winter time, those, uh, that kind of bubble of fish keeps getting smaller and smaller. And what we see is, you know, you find areas that aren't very far away from an overwintering site. You can catch a lot of fish in, in a short amount of time, like in October and November, as the water temperature starts getting cool, and those fish start start getting ready to move into those overwintering backwaters. Okay, so find that find the 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 body of water in between those two places, and that tends to be a good spot. Yep, like the side channels and sloughs, you know, not very far away from them, and they they definitely associate with with woody cover, snags, and logs. Right. Okay, and there's definitely a lot of that out there. Um, yeah, there is. <laughs> so, uh, does the river have muskies in it? You know, we occasionally see one every once in a while, but um, it's typically an escapee from a, a reservoir or a, a lake in the watershed. Okay. Um, we don't really have a population of muskie out here. Okay. Um, we have a lot of northern pike, but we don't really have a population of muskies. What What is it about a, a muskie that make doesn't make it thrive in the river like because i i look at a muskie and i look at a northern and i i i assume they're somewhat of the from the same you know genome or species or whatever you call it yeah no they're 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 very similar i you know that's a very good question and i'm not sure i don't know if it's a a water clarity thing if you know muskies are more adapted to you know you think of them as more of a lake fish although you know there's they do inhabit rivers in certain areas so i don't know if it's if it's just a water clarity issue that they're not as good at handling dirtier water um, as northern pike are i mean our northern pike are doing awesome yeah you know there's a lot of them out there but all right so uh northern pike here what uh, I would say second to smallmouth. I, you know, I love just snagging into a good northern and having a fight with them. What's uh, what kind of cover are these guys looking for? Or what where if I want to go up on the backwater or in the main channel, or wherever, where should I look for for northerns? Well, they're you know northern pike is a kind of an ambush predator. So um, and we we did some telemetry work with northern pike up in pools uh, ten and and thirteen. And, you know, especially up in pool 10 where there was a lot of aquatic vegetation, they would be, you know, right in the middle of a, of a big bed of, of lily pads or, um, wild celery. Um, you know, I, 
the bass guys that, that throw the scum frogs and topwater stuff, you know, encounter northern pike quite a bit. Um, they're in those areas. If we get into the summertime and the, the water temperature gets hot, we, we do see um, concentrations of northern pike, you know, kind of at the, the mouths of some of our trout streams and, and cooler water streams where yeah. they come into the river. Um, so that's a, you know, a good spot to, to go in and, and focus, you know, some effort on northern pike. Why is that? But, well, they, they prefer the cooler water, so that okay. kind of draws them in. Um, they're, they're cool water species. So if we get if we get too hot, um, it's that's not good for them. But back in 2012, you know we had low water and, a, and kind of a heat wave in the middle of the summer, and we experienced a, a northern pike kill up and down the river where you know it's pretty species specific, just northern pike. Right. Um, what what so you, those those thermal refuges can be important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So what about times in of flooding? Uh, I know that uh, in the past, you know, 10 years, the Mississippi River has been flooded several times, um, you know, and, and we've talked about all these structures that the fish like to hang out. Are there times where when it's flooding, fish just go into survival mode where, you know, they obviously can't stay in the main channel because the current's just so fast and, and hard? Are there are there places that they go to survive or do they just get swept down river? How's that work? No, actually, and for, for most of the fish species, flooding is, is really good for them. Um, a lot of, um, like walleyes and, and catfish and sturgeons and paddlefish, when we have a big flood, we see, um, a lot of recruitment, you know, big year class of fish, you know, the fish just move off to the side. Those, the stuff that was terrestrial habitat, um, is now aquatic habitat and they'll go into the, into the flooded forests and the, the flows aren't, you know, crazy wild. Once you get off the main channel and, and into some of those protected areas, they just move up into the floodplain. You know, that's just part of a, you know, natural river system that you get that flood pulse and it opens up that floodplain, you know, for the fish to utilize and, and other organisms and the productivity increases. So it, for the most part, you know, the flooding is, is not detrimental to the fish at all. Okay. That's interesting. I, I, I just had this assumption that flooding is bad for everything, but it sounds to me like it just gives them more places to go and hide and, and, uh, gives them more food to eat and ha- gives them access to more of what they need. Yeah. It, it just, it opens up a lot more habitat for them. You know, it can be really bad for fishing because, you know, especially over here on the river, a lot of our accesses may be flooded, so you can't get out on the river. Um, you know, and the, the water clarity tends to be, you know, a lot worse when we're flooding. So, but, you know, catfishing can be really good in high water. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, other things can be a little bit slower just because of the, the water clarity issue. Gotcha. Cool, man. Well, I tell you what, we're uh, we're coming up on an hour here. Uh, is there any anything else that you would like to share with us? Whether that is a um, you know a project that you guys are working on, or maybe a tip or trick for fishing, or anything really. Oh. Well, I guess I could put in a plug for you know kind of the projects that we're working on that are kind of actively in construction right now yeah go for um, it that we're ex- really excited about um in in pool 14 um by the city of clinton we have a, a beaver island habitat restoration project that we're that we're working on right now and i think the crews are gonna last i heard should be out by the by next week starting to to work again and that's a a project where we're Again, dredging out of backwater, but we're using that material to uh, to do some forest restoration on Beaver Island, which is one of the, the if not the largest, one of the largest islands in the, in the upper Mississippi River along Iowa. Um, and we also did some, some uh, island protection work on a small island, Albany Island, on the, on the west side of, of Beaver Island. But um, we had crews out there when that rock was put in. Um, you know, we didn't see a whole lot of fish in that area and they went out and sampled a week after that rock was put in and it was covered in big bluegills and and lots of game fish and um, it was really exciting to see. That's awesome. 
It's and I bet it's pretty satisfying for you. And this is just me guessing when you do a project and then you see the success of it. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's that's you know our job and and what we do is you know making the the fishing and, and hunting you know better for our licensed buyers and really for everybody. Um, you know all the other recreational uses as well. Yeah those habitat create more fishing opportunities and then the more fishing opportunities you have you get more licensed buyers which kind of comes full circles and helps support the habitat restoration itself absolutely cool all right kirk well man i really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and chit chat with us about what you do in the in the mississippi river fishery um thanks for your time and we'll definitely have to have you on again Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks a lot, Dan.